pitch. Swing and a high fly ball. Deep left field. That's a way to win it right there. Deliver a three-run homer. Danny Jansen with his second game winner of the season. An absolute no-doubter. Yeah, that was fun. Fan drive time, Sportsnet 590, the fan, Sportsnet 360, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy. So the sweep streak ends at four series. It is no longer as uh, the Blue Jays walk off the Yankees last night. Danny Jansen didn't need to hit a home run, but he took the opportunity to hit a home run. Another walk off for him. Chris Bassett, outstanding again, despite the fact that he was feeling under the weather. Shutout streak now, 27 innings, the third longest in franchise uh, history. Dave Steve, Roger Clements. Yep, that's correct. Um, Yeah, the Blue Jays, I mean, they only scored three runs and it was scoreless going into extra innings. They did manage 10 hits, only two of those for extra bases, though. The one you just heard, uh, courtesy of Ben Wagner, and then Alejandro Kirk also had a double. Um, And boy, was that very close to being a single and thrown out at second base, even though it was about as well-placed as you could possibly place a ball for an extra base hit in Rogers Center. Yeah. Uh, Still a little closer, and he did like... So I was home on the weekend and I have a nephew who's just about to turn two. Yeah. And the thing that he likes most about baseball uh, is sliding. Like he yeah. sees the guy slides and, and he gets really it does so look fun. He'll like run around the backyard and just like flop onto his butt. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what Alejandro Kirk's slide into second base look like. Um, very, very close to being only one extra base hit on the day. He is wont to do that uh, on occasion. Uh, not the most fleet of foot human being. Uh, also runners in scoring position. Honestly, I'm such a weirdo that I view winning a baseball game in which you went one for 17 with runners in scoring position as some great, great sign of, of things to come because unlikely to reproduce one for 17 with runners in scoring position again. You lost one in this. I, weirdly, it feels like the Jays have been struggling with runners in scoring position a lot lately, but in that Brave series and Monday's game against the Yankees, they were actually really good. Um, so they but were their their batting average with runners in scoring position fourteen points lower than yes. their batting average overall. It's two forty four with runners in scoring position, with which is eighteenth in baseball. Um, not very good. They're they're fifteenth in baseball in WRC plus. If you prefer a more total look at, at what they're doing at the play with runners in scoring position, they're they're very pedestrian mm-hmm. with runners in scoring position. Uh, one for seventeen is uh, ridiculous, though. That is. Uh, like you're getting not quite into that territory, but you're like, oh yeah, what the the Jays have the same odds of getting a hit with runners in scoring position as the Raptors had of moving into the top <laughs> four in the lottery on Tuesday night. Like we're talking a difference of one percentage point. Yeah, uh, yeah, it wasn't ideal. Although the, the one was a pretty important one. If you're gonna have one, let it be the one to win the game but in also, the bottom like, of the tenth. But that logic only <laughs> assumes that like all of the other ones wouldn't have also won the game, which they would have. Yeah. It also like, assumes uh, uh, that Chris Bassett is starting every game and throwing up zeros, which uh, he can only do it every five days. But holy cow. You know, I, like, I'm guilty of this as well because I, I, I thought the Chris Bassett signing, it was a shrewd piece of business. He's a very good pitcher. But you forget, like, how good he actually has been in his career. And he was good last year for the Mets, but good to the two previous years in Oakland where he was a top 10 American League Cy Young Award candidate. Like, that's what this guy is capable of. And you get kind of, I think, the 94 of it and the 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 sinker and, and not blowing anyone away kind of makes you think that he's this guy that he's actually not. He is a top-of-the-rotation pitcher. 
and the Mets could use him right now instead of Justin Verlander, who they're paying like double the amount of money in in half as many years. I said after his last start on this show, and it felt like felt a little weird, like it felt greedy to be asking for more. But I had said like if you look at his his history and his profile. You could actually argue we haven't seen the best of him yet because he's been walking a lot of guys, right? Like this is a career high or until last night, it was a career high walk rate. It's now slightly below uh, one of his first kind of partial seasons in Oakland. But you saw last night, only one walk. And suddenly not only does he look very good, but he looks like downright dominant because he's not working outside of the zone very much. And the Yankees striking everybody still can't do much with it. And he's tricky. And I know there's sequencing and tunneling and having seven pitches and all that stuff. Um, And it's worth noting also that I believe he said after the game, he's been dealing with a bad sinus infection. Yeah. Um, I was sick on on top of which he, you know, we've seen him grimace a couple of times. He's had the, the low back, Stuff that Who hasn't? Holy I was cow. talking to Sam McKee earlier today. He's dealing with the low back <laughs> stuff. All you guys in your mid thirties to late forty or mid thirties to early forties, <laughs> simmer down. Uh, not me. Uh, my back's no, fine. No, yeah, yeah. You're yeah in your mid twenties, as we all know. Um, no, he was amazing yesterday and has been amazing, save for the first start of his. Blue Jays career. So, I have these numbers handy, actually. And, yeah. and obviously, we're early enough in the season. And, and at no point can you really do the thing of like, well, if you take out all the bad stats, here are the good stats. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> since it's it's the sequencing here is important. Uh, so if you take out that very first start of the season, 171 ERA, a whip under one, mm. and opponents are hitting just 136 against in batting average. Mm, that's pretty good. And I will say, okay, th- there's a little bit. There's a reason why, like, I was like, oh, this guy must be up there among the, the league leaders in Fangraph's war. He's not because, because his, of it's FIP based, right? Well, and his batting average on balls in play is ridiculously low. It's under 200. Mm-hmm. Opponents are hitting against him when they put the ball in play. And But his career batting average on balls in play for opponents is much lower than league average because yes. of the soft contact induced. And he's inducing and a, a ground ton ball of profile as 100%. well. 100%. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, by the way, uh, the difference between a fan a fangrass war and a baseball reference war for pitchers is baseball reference looks at what happened. So you get dinged for, hey, if a lot of balls dropped in, too bad, um, that kind of thing. Fangraphs tends to focus on strikeouts, walks, home runs, the stuff that the pitchers believe to have the most control over. So this is why I say Kevin Gosman last year ha- leads the league in Fangraphs war because high strikeouts, low walks, mm-hmm. not very many home runs. Um, but baseball reference war looks at him and says, well, we got to ding you for all those balls in play that dropped in because that happened. Even yeah. if it's not, even if we don't project it to happen forever, we got to ding you for it right now. Um, so that's the difference there. If, if you're wondering when we bring that stuff up. So Chris Bassett with a 10% walk rate and with the 197 batting average on balls in play gets dinged. Like, like fan sees him as yeah. a guy with the ERA, a true ERA closer to 4.5, which is well, not, and, not and, a thing. And don't get mad at us for talking about it. Doesn't like take anything away. Like the results are the most important thing. We get that. Yeah. We all understand yeah, that. Like, look, if I had an MVP ballot or, or a Cy Young ballot, I am using baseball references version of wins above replacement yeah. because I don't care what should have happened. No, what happened? Yeah. You, what should have happened is helpful for projecting forward and looking at what might happen next, yeah. but what should have happened is what matters. And he's thrown 27 consecutive shutout innings That's is good. what's happened. Yeah. You know what's happening right now? We're going to talk to uh, the great Caleb Joseph, part of the, the catcher tandem on uh, blue Jay central alongside Joe Siddle. Uh, he's getting ready for the broadcast of the, the finale of this four-game series down at Rogers Center. He joins us now. How's it going, Caleb? Oh, what's up? What a whirlwind it has been here at Rogers Center for yeah. the last three games. Hopefully, 
The last one uh, doesn't disappoint. Yeah, no, the first three haven't. Uh, Blue Jays finally got a win out of the the deal, but like less drama, I was, I, I, I guess, uh, in yesterday's game. But Chris Bass and we were just. We just spent the first five minutes of the show talking about how great he has been, say, for the, the first start of his Blue Jays career, getting people freaked out about the potential of him being a different guy uh, in the American League, despite the fact that it was against the National League team. But what have you seen from Bassett since that first start uh, that's made him so effective? Weak contact. He is just inducing weak contact after weak contact after weak contact. How is he doing it? He's establishing that sinker. And I was actually just on the field talking to David Cohn, who was kind of explaining how that glove flying up at the very beginning of his delivery, the way that he's 6'5", and he's dropping down, loading on that back leg, it just comes out a little bit different. He can throw that sinker at the top of the zone. He can throw it at the bottom, in, out. He has command of that pitch, and it loads up all of the other breaking balls. So a lot of times you get kind of caught on all the off-speed pitches, which uh, there's seven of them, but it all starts with that command of that sinker. And he's getting OO looks. He's able to throw it when he's behind in the count and getting weak contact. And the guy knows who he is. He's been around a long time. He's pitched a lot of innings in the big leagues. And once you start to find out who you are and what you're really good at and master that, I think of a guy like Kevin Gosman. He's figured out exactly who he is and he's going to go master it. But you load that two seam up on the outer half, and then you can work that sweeper off of it with a 20 mile an hour difference. It is a tough AB. It's a very tough AB. A lot of times, those crafty righties, man, they were tough at bats uh, that I remember standing in there. Sometimes you'd rather have that 95 to 98 in a good hard slider because having to cover a 20 mile an hour different difference in speed, it is. Uh, it's very very difficult to stay on the low on the, the lower half and uh, and drive the ball. And a bunch of different spin profiles and movement profiles as well. And when you throw six or seven pitches, you can sequence them in all sorts of ways where you, you can't predict what's coming. Um, Chris Bassett has been a very, like you said, he knows who he is. He's been a very good version of Chris Bassett for years now. Um, I look at what he's done so far this year, and I look at these recent couple games, that this shutout streak that he's on right now. And over the last two, 15 to three strikeout to walk ratio. Um, the walks were up a little bit for him early in the year, but now we're seeing the strikeouts come around too. What, do you think there's more swing and miss upside for, for Bassett to tap into than, than we've seen in recent years in his career? Yeah, I, I do. I think a lot of it depends on who you're throwing against and what does they as the opponent's profile too. Do you have more contact-oriented teams or do you have guys that might be looking to uh, to put the ball in the seats? We know the AL Central, there's a lot of uh, power. I mean, AL East, there's a lot of power in this division. And so you've got guys that are prone to the strikeout. So I think he likes to use uh, that aggressiveness in his favor. And like you said, being able to pair – uh, that big breaking ball, the big sweeper, whatever the 70 to 68 to 69, 71 mile an hour pitch is, whatever he wants to call that, I like that one a lot. And I think that one, um, you pairing that with the two seam, it just it, it, it just yo-yos the hitter back and forth. And you've got to pick. You've got to pick against Chris Bassett whether you're going to sit hard or soft. And you've got to figure out if you're going to stay hard, you've got one pitch. Now, he throws it about 45% of the time, but – If you're looking soft, he can profile it into you. He can profile it underneath. He can profile it moving away from you, and he has options. And so when you have those type of options and you have command, he can go to to high-whiff zones. And, again, I I think he's got, like you said, more ability to create whiff because of who he's pitching against and his ability to actually 
throw it in those high whiff zones mm. dependent on where those hitters' whiff zones are. Whiff zones. Um, yeah, the, the you know what? Blue Jays batters don't have a ton of whiff zones. They're actually, they have the six fewest strikeouts in Major League Baseball, but I'm glad you talked, Caleb, about the, the profile of many of the teams within this division who hit a lot of home runs. I mean, the, the Rays lead Major League Baseball in home runs. They have almost like double the amount of home runs the Blue Jays do. I, and I wonder... If you're seeing, like, are the Blue Jays making this bargain where they're not striking out at all, but they're not hitting for much power? We saw the 10 hits yesterday, two extra base hits. The the home run power has just, it, it hasn't happened yet for this team, and maybe that's just a matter of be, it being early and that coming around. But, yeah, I do look at something like K-rate being low and, and their batting average being pretty high, but the power being pretty low too they're 11th worst in isolated slugging percentage is this a team that's that's giving up strikeouts like they're they're saying we're not going to strike out but that might cost us a few extra base hits yeah i think they wanted to to get more dynamic so uh i just think when you go to the playoffs yes there there's a lot of runs scored in the playoffs deep into the playoffs via the home run but I think there might be a shift happening right now in terms of putting pressure on defenses, putting pressure on pitchers, and trying to string together a couple hits in a row. And I know the, the numbers don't love that, but I would suggest that the numbers don't love that because everyone's trying to hit home runs. Uh, I think if everybody starts to put the ball and play like the Blue Jays have, there's a lot more commotion that goes on. And I remember being a catcher. When there's runners on base, stuff starts to fly a little bit faster the the game speeds up, and, and no pitcher loves pitching with guys in scoring position, period. Nobody loves it. They want the bases clean. And I think they're, you got to remember, too, that they've lost quite a bit of home runs in Teoscar Hernandez, and they've lost some home runs out of uh, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. Now, last year in Toronto, Lourdes didn't hit a ton of home runs, but over his career, he could put the ball in the seats. And, uh, and he's got eight already this Teoscar, year. They kind of hurt. Yeah, those, those homers from Teoscar hurt as well. So, I think the Blue Jays were probably hoping for a little bit more from uh, Varsho in terms of the home run. So you might you might look to that if, if, if you're looking at why are they down so much. I think they probably expected a little bit more from him. Don't forget, Kirk has, has been down. Jansen has been down. There's some power there. But they're finding ways to win because they're dynamic. You add a guy like Kevin Kiermeyer and you add Varsho's ability to get on base, what they do on the bases. They can score runs and multiple different ways and I actually love the fact that they're not dependent on the home run to score runs and that's a key factor that plays out nice over 162 it would be nice for them to put a couple balls in the seats imagine them putting a ball in the seats off of Garrett Cole last night it might not have gone 10 innings and it might not have been as high stress if they could have uh, capitalized on one of those big innings especially in the first inning when they made two errors but I'm not worried about where they are offensively they haven't clicked yet totally and I think that bodes well uh, that when they do click, they'll they'll open some eyes. Caleb, you mentioned Alejandro Kirk in there. Obviously, as far as plate discipline and understanding balls and strikes as a hitter, um, few at that level, especially at the catcher position. But we can go back and we can look at the second half of last season where, yeah, he walked more than he struck out in, in both halves of the season. But his power dropped off pretty significantly in the second half of last year. Still a very good hitter, just not a hitter that's bringing a lot of additional pop. That's been the kind of hitter that he is so far this year as well. A 320 
uh, a slugging right now, and that's with you know uh, drawing a lot of drawing a lot of walks and making some not elite contact, but but still not striking out a lot. Um, are you what are you seeing when it comes to Alejandro Kirk's inability to? to rack up extra base hits. I know he had one yesterday um, just kind of by the, sure. by the skin of his teeth there, but what have you going back to last year, even um, you know, that trade-off that you just kind of talked about, how does that apply to, to Kirk specifically someone who handles the zone so well, but the power has dropped off a little bit. Yeah. Sometimes I think it's good to remember that the catching position is grueling. It's just grueling. And even though he had quite a few DH spots and they worked him regularly, with Danny Jansen, the 162 grind at the catcher position is very, very tough, which is why you have catchers that can do what you just alluded to in terms of draw walks, hit for a very high average, and put the ball in the seat. They all make $150 million, and most of them are on the Hall of Fame ballot. You think (laughs) of a guy like Buster Posey. They're just so rare. I mean, they're just so rare. Can Kirk be one of those guys? Possibly, yeah. I think what we've seen recently with Kirk, I was just talking to Guillermo Martinez not too long ago about this, is there are some mechanical things going on with him that they're really ironing out right now. Being able to get loaded into that back side. You know, he has that setup where that toe is kind of pointed up at the very beginning of his swing. And it's so easy when you have that toe starting, you know, up to just kind of drift into your, your front side to then start the swing. When you have that toe up, you've got to make sure as the pitcher is delivering the baseball, you get loaded into that back right hip from a right-handed hitter and then gather your weight to then reach with the front foot. That's where the power is loaded and stored, and that's when you can release that power. If you just lean into that front side, you don't really have a lot of direction. You don't have a lot of whip and snap in that bat, and that's where a lot of the power is lost. So I think you're seeing him work on that early on uh, with uh, on the field with Guillermo Martinez. He's starting to feel that. He said, uh, Guillermo did, he said in the cage, he's looked phenomenal. Now it's about backing the ball up because when you're leaning out over, the contact points out in front. Once you start loading into that back hip again, it allows you to see the ball deeper. You can let it travel. Now your contact point gets closer to the body. Once you see him start to kind of sink all of these parts up, I think you'll see some more balls off the wall and over the wall. Uh, but more importantly, I, I, I think uh, if he continues to have a great eye at the plate, he'll be in a he'll be in a good spot. Um, yeah, off the wall kind of leads me to my my next point here because I may have solved the the extra base uh, hit problem with the Blue Jays. Blue Jays play at a ballpark that mm-hmm. does not allow home runs to be hit, and Blake Murphy was on this early. Take that, Mike Petriello. And and I will say that the <laughs> the, the, the the info is yeah, take it with a grain of salt because it is May, and the Blue Jays have played sparingly few home games. Yeah, I we understand need like it. three years of sample, no, but I'm no, going to take the victory lap right no, now. No, we don't. We need just as much sample as we've gotten so far. Where Rogers Center, <laughs> the new dimensions, Caleb are playing 24th in baseball as far as home run ability. So this is observed home runs by both the home team and the visiting team. And 26th in overall offense park factors. Again, it's early, and and this is, yeah, Blake's right. You do need a larger sample for it. But to your eye, Caleb, sure. like it, it doesn't exactly look like Great American Ballpark or, or Citizens Bank Park so far early in the, in the going with the new dimensions. Two words, closed roof. Hmm. That's my explanation. I, 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 I did not play here as a J, but I played a ton of games here as a visitor, and I, I could be wrong. The stats may say differently, but I felt like the ball 
traveled better when it was open. I just felt like for some reason it traveled better. But it is a bit ironic because I'll tell you what, I talked to Pete Walker down uh, on the field before the home opener, and we were looking at the wall, and I said, how do your pitchers feel about this? And he said, yeah, they're, they're, they're not worried, but they're taking notes, and they're very aware of the changes, meaning – they felt like it was going to fly out of the ballpark. They felt like this place is, is, is going to be very, very different in terms of how it played, and it just hasn't been the case. It has not. Um, I felt like there was some room in, in the uh, right center field gap that some guys would be able to exploit. Hasn't been the case. I will say, though, I think the roof has only been open for a handful of games so far at the Rogers Center, and I'm waiting to see what it plays like when it's open. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good point. I mean, historically, obviously, we don't have any data for for these dimensions yet. Historically, there's only a slight impact with the dome being open, and a lot of that is tied into, well, it's warmer, and we know that mm. offense comes a little better uh, when it's warmer. But also, yeah, there are new dimensions here, and we, we got to see how that plays out. So, Caleb, I, I'm with you that uh, maybe we need to wait on that a little bit. But, Ben, in, in those numbers that you have, um, is Kirk, like, specifically – a, a guy who, who's been hurt by this so far? Or, or? Uh, I haven't gone that deep oh, okay. on it, Sorry. honestly. And I saw you had the graph open, and <laughs> yeah, I, thought, but that, I, I thought maybe yeah. it was the Jays one. Sorry. No, I have, yeah, not individually. Like, yeah, it doesn't. I don't have a, a page where it's, you know, how many home runs have been taken away by specific Blue Jays. Oh, and in I fact, have it. I, I, oh, I just got it. it Kirk's even. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I can't even, like, off the top of my head, think of too many times that a fly ball would have been a home run in previous incarnations of the Rogers Center, and and haven't been right. this year. But I like there's I have more numbers though too. Like I do have the the Blue Jays being 13th in home run per fly ball percentage on the road and 26th at home. Again, mm. small sample, but like that is that is pretty significant. I don't know. We we got to let it play out, but it, it's a little weird. Uh, before we let you go, Caleb, uh, Jose Barrios on the hill again uh, for the Blue Jays tonight, trying to salvage a split of this four game set. Um, what have you seen out of him lately? I mean, he had the big uh, hiccup in at Fenway Park, which uh, just about every Blue Jay pitcher or uh, right. position player seemed to have. But since then, he's been a lot more reliable this season. What are you seeing from him? Yep, glove side sinkers. That's inside to the left-handers, outside to the right-handers. We're going to touch on it on uh, Blue Jay Central 6.30 tonight. And I really feel like that is a great recipe for him. When he can get fully extended out over that baseball and drive his entire body in his lane to that outer half of the plate, work that ball off the plate and then bring it back against the right-handers, I really feel like it sets him up. The thing's moving 10, 12 inches. The plate is 17 inches wide. As a right-handed hitter, when you have that sinker that's appearing as if it's in the left-handed batter's box and then moving 10 inches all the way back to the corner. It's an easy, easy pitch to shut down and say there's no way that's a strike. And then you compare that big slurve, that big breaking ball off of that on the outer lane. When people think sinker baller, right-hander with a two-seam or a sinker, they immediately think of jamming right-handers inside. So I feel like all right-handers typically want to start wound up trying to pull that sinker, get it out of there. So I think there's a lot of early easy strikes out there he can pair that slurve off of it and then once they start to lean out over then he can use that two seam on the inner half the guys that i've caught with similar profiles in terms of pitches the best games they've had was when they were able to establish that away outside backdoor two seamer to the right handers and what it does it is it allows him to get in that perfect spot to when he wants to bring one back 
on the inner half to the left-handers. He's starting it at the body line, having it finish on the inside corner versus starting it on the corner, having it finish on the middle to outer third of the plate, which that's where the left-handers really want to drive the ball. The more times that he can get that ball all the way to the glove side and start nailing that, I feel like he's going to have a good game. He's been, uh, he's been a, a, not a surprise, but you know, with, with the struggles that Manoa has had this year, he and Kikuchi, they've, they've done a, a, a nice job of kind of holding the fort allowing Manoa to kind of figure it out. Can you imagine if those guys, if those guys were struggling nope. as bad as they were last year, this team would be a mess. So he and he and Kikuchi deserve a lot of credit. Hopefully he can turn in another good one tonight versus the Yankees. Caleb, um, Barrios has eight starts so far this season, four with Jansen, four with Kirk. I, I don't want to, you know, blame or credit to the catcher specifically for, for the work a pitcher's doing, but he has been a little better with Danny Jansen behind the plate. We are seeing Danny Jansen behind the plate tonight. Um, what What is it that Jansen has done to, to help Barrios along? Is it just his ability to kind of manage the the plate horizontally, like the way he can set up and frame on either side, or is there something more to what Jansen's been able to help Barrios with? Yeah, it's a great question. And I get this a lot. And I, sometimes there's something to it. Sometimes there's nothing to it. And I, I've used this example before. I, I caught Chris Tillman a few times in Baltimore. I knew the guy inside and out. I knew how to set up. I knew where he liked to set up. I knew his sequences and I just never had a ton of success with him. And then you flip, the coin to a, two or three other pitchers, and I had a lot of success with them. So I, there, there, there's really not something very particular that you can point to other than possibly maybe just the appearance of the setup. Maybe, you know, Jansen is typically on two legs where Kirk likes to go to one knee, and maybe it's a wider target. Maybe Jansen is a little bit further on the corners, allowing him to start that ball where he wants, picking a spot on Jansen's body. That's what a lot of pitchers will do. They'll pick a starting point. So if they want the ball to finish on the corner, Danny Jansen's glove is going to be on the outer part of the corner. Well, you don't want to throw it at the glove, start it at the glove because that ball will finish in the middle of the plate. You'll want to start it maybe at his right shoulder protector and then have it work in. Maybe the target, the presentation is a little bit different, but I thought Kirk did a fantastic job in all of his setups uh, with Bassett last night, I feel like he's getting a little bit more proactive with moving and getting a little bit further out and uh, moving a little bit later. So I, I feel like both of them can really handle Brios. And at the end of the day, uh, Brios is, he knows his game and he's got to find ways to, to communicate whatever he needs with the catchers. But uh, maybe it's a little bit of presentation just in terms of wit with uh, Danny Jansen back there. Uh, John Schneider, Brad Wilkerson, who comes out of the, <laughs> the, the octagon between those two? <laughs> oh, man, I'm going with Schneider. Uh, he, he, he's a very nice guy. Very nice guy. He comes across as a gentle giant, but he, there's a look in his eye that I, I would not want to cross him in a dark alley uh, after saying some bad things about him. I, I, I am glad that he is in the Blue Jays' dugout because if there, there was ever some sort of brawl, I, I feel like he, he would be the guy coming out looking like Mel Gibson in Braveheart. I feel like he's that type of guy. So, uh, um, yeah, I'm going with Schneider for sure, 100 out of 100. That's, that's a seemingly a smart move. Uh, Caleb, thanks, buddy. Enjoy the game. Yeah, you got it. Take care. Uh, Caleb Joseph, Blue Jays Central, getting ready for the uh, game on Sportsnet. Tonight, um, going up against Joe us, Soto. by the way, he gives us all that great insight. And then he's like, oh, by the way, if you want more of the good stuff, mm-hmm. turn these guys off at 630, switch on over to Blue don't Jay do, Central. Don't do that. No. Or have, you know what? To screen it. Why don't you do that? Hey, well, here's the thing. Because we have some news 
to share today. Uh, this will be one of the last times that we're up against Blue Jay Central. That's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Blair and Barker moving five to seven starting on Monday. And then, uh, yeah, fan drive time moves three to five and Blue Jays talk plus uh, moves 10 to 12. Yeah. So, you know, it leaps out a little too early again. Of course, we we do, uh, a, you know, a bit of a schedule shuffle up here to get us some more Jays coverage throughout the day. So, yeah, I'll be 10 to 12. Um, simulcast on sports at 360 in addition to podcasts and and regular radio terrestrial radio um you'll be three to five which is a bit of an early drive home but you'll still catch some of the mm-hmm. certainly on fridays too you'll, you'll catch people getting out of here a little early um and then yeah blair and barker i mean pretty natural five to seven spot leading into the blue jays game uh also simulcast on sports at 360 Sportsnet now on sports at 590 the fan yeah and maybe they'll talk about uh how rogers center is not the band box that we all expected it to be i mean what do you make of that because again like it's small sample but this is i mean to us it's not necessarily a surprise because you ran the very crude projections of this thing and it did yeah, the batting average went up, but the home run totals were suppressed. And then, yeah, Mike Petriello, as you mentioned, like ran a simulation where it was what, like a, a million extra home runs uh, that we certainly haven't no, seen. I think it was like 20 no, it was, something. it was 10 million extra home runs yeah. this season that the Blue Jays None and their opponents. with runners on scoring, <laughs> runners in scoring position. Yeah, um, but that is a little bit weird. And I understand that the Blue Jays have played the fewest home games in all of Major League Baseball, but that's 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 pretty stark. It is. And, and look, again, I don't want to, nobody has the patience to sit here and be like, well, we can't judge anything with the new park for three seasons because we need about 250 games for park factors to stabilize. Mm. Now, that's the truth. And I actually think you probably need even longer at a park like Rogers Center, where, as Caleb pointed out, sometimes a dome is open and sometimes mm. it's not. But for so right come now, back to me on my deathbed when yes. I'm like 112 and when tell me how it works. Has different dimensions <laughs> altogether again. Yeah. Um, no, I think for right now, all we can look at is is that and I think you know you mentioned the home run per fly ball stats which is generally an indicator of well how big a charge are you putting into the balls you put in the air we can look at things like you know we talked about yesterday Matt Chapman Bobachet Vladimir Guerrero Jr. all being toward the top of the league and expected outcomes it's still having very good seasons Mm -hmm. but a big gap between expected and actual um, maybe that has a little something to do with the games they've played at home and how you know the balls are traveling in there and how they're playing off the walls and stuff like that it's probably still, you know, a little early even for like early takeaways. But I also think that it, you know, no, it's not too early for early takeaways because I just did that. But it also like it fits what we like. It very much matches the eye test, which is that a the park hasn't been as friendly as maybe people expected, and b this team hasn't been as powerful as maybe we expected. Dude, now, it, now is one the complete explanation for the other? I don't mm-hmm. think so. I think there's going to be a little bit of both of those things. Uh, driving those results and I and I get what Caleb's saying about hey playoff baseball hey look at those pesky 2015 Kansas City Royals with their no home runs and just putting the ball in play and stealing bases and Alcides Escobar and the, the whole lot of them I get it go back and look at the major league leaders in home runs year over year and how that worked out for that team in the postseason like you generally pretty well I would say yeah because you know what's the best way to score runs is you take one swing and it's immediately at least one. Uh, it it's a very effective way. Now, can you score the other way? Sure, it's way more difficult to string together two and three and four hits or steal a base or rely on on a ball skipping past somebody's glove on the ground. Like that can happen. 
and you get good batted ball luck, and you know you can just string a few of those together. But if that is, I've talked about this before that everybody gets obsessed with the all fields approach, right? And like how professional batters, you know, they can spray it all over the place, and right handers hitting it to right field and on the ground and hustling out of the box. That's all well and good, but if they if there is some fundamental a fundamental shift amongst Blue Jays batters to eschew striking out. Uh, for higher batting average, but giving away home run potential, that's bad. That is not good. And look, this is, again, the versatility is absolutely important. Eight of the top 10 teams in total home runs hit so far are above 500, and five of them are leading their division. Yeah. It's a pretty good way to create offense um, in a hurry. And I think, you know, the Jays, there's more there from the home run side um you know certainly with, with someone like vlad maybe even matt chapman starts to you know some of those doubles become home well, runs even though he he's cooled a little bit and then you know you look at a, a george springer who has five home runs but is like you know near the top of the league and a lot of exit velocity stuff like that although he's been his season's been incredibly weird if you dive into the the numbers and stuff um but yeah they've traded like if you look at your depth hitters and not depth hitters because Teoscar hit in the middle of the lineup, but guys who are not your big three, they've traded power for versatility and defense. And mm. obviously the bet is that that's going to come out to be a positive over the course of a whole baseball game that includes both sides of, of play. But yeah, it's a little harder Dude. to create that instant offense right you now. Th- this reminds me of a conversation we were having about Lourdes Gurriel Jr. last season. Who did like give? He seemingly gave up the. And now he, this year, he did the Jays change one year. He knew these changes were coming for the Jays, and he was like, "I don't want them to trade me. I'm going to trade in all my home runs for batting average." Except this year, and I said he had eight. He has seven. Yeah, it's the same number as Vladimir Guerrero Jr. It's also this, more than he had all of last year. It's insane. So I don't know what's going on there, but I I I don't know if he's done the opposite. Although he, like he the batting also, average is also over 300, so he's just like kind of doing it all. And he is like like this started happening two years ago, but he just doesn't strike out. Anymore. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> he and like career high walk yeah. rate, career low strikeout yeah, rate. Yeah, the defense is still pretty lame in in sure. left field, but, but it's left field. Yeah, if you it, have an OPS of nine hundred and yeah nine twenty five, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that'll play. And guess which stats stabilize the earliest walk rate and strikeout rate. Looks yeah. like a guy who is fundamentally better approaching his plate appearances, and we've seen him show twenty home run power and show three hundred mm. batting average. I don't know that anyone expected them to happen at the same time because they hadn't like his whole career. You go, it's like a high average year, then a high home run year and back and forth. And now he's both. And yeah, I mean, good for him. He's a tremendously fun guy to, to watch and to root for mm. um, and to not have to watch play to play in the outfield also, but no doubt, but a guy could also play a little first base for you too. And against the lefty with a Vladimir Guerrero jr. Nursing a knee injury might be a nice place for him today, but instead it's Brandon Belt hitting what seventh yeah. today. I guess yeah. the lefty. And then you get hamstrung in terms of who you can pinch run because it has to be someone who can play first base in a pinch. And uh, yeah. then you end up with more Kevin Biggio. Your boy Kevin Biggio getting thrown out Howdy. on a line drive. You got a freeze on oh. um, in a huge, huge spot as a pinch runner. Um, I don't want to yeah. pick on people, right? Kevin Biggio, he's just like you and, and me. He bleeds like all of us. You know, he's a, he's a human he's going being. through it right now. No doubt. It, it, yeah, it, it, it might be nearing the end of uh, everybody's Kevin Biggio tolerance level. And yeah, like, yeah, it, like it we said like, yesterday, no more corner outfield starts over Nathan Lucas for a bit. Like I don't, neither of them should really be starting, but if you're going to, if you got to give somebody a blow, you want to get them in there. I, I don't understand the logic behind starting Biggio over Lucas. And even point. the first base thing, like 
okay, if you, you, Vlad's not playing and you pinch ran for Bell, right? So what do you do at first base? Biggio's the only other guy. You're telling me that you couldn't move Nathan Lucas to a corner outfield. Mm-hmm. Whit Merrifield comes back to second base and es- Espinal slides over. Whit Merrifield can't play first base. I know he's on the shorter side for a first baseman, but like if you're talking about one inning in a, in a game tight enough where you had to, um, you know, pinch run, like I, I'm sure if Kevin Biggio can figure out the move from second and third to first base, so can a superior defender at those positions, right? Like yeah. you're not that it's the easiest spot on the diamond. Um, also easy to like freeze on a line drive. It's one of the first things to tell you in base running. School. And this is where, you know, we once again, get back to if anyone other than Spencer Horwitz <laughs> yeah. could get a hit for yeah. the Buffalo Bisons and like Jordan, Otto Lopez had a couple yeah. yesterday. He's heating up a bit. Yeah. Jordan Luplo's on the IL now. Yeah. Okay. Um, great. Not that he was coming back in, but I'm sure that's a guy that could play some first base, yeah. a journeyman corner outfielder. Mm. He could fill in there. Yeah. Otto Lopez has come around a little bit. I, I guess the next name you're looking at is like, he's not in the 40 man, so he's not going to get a call, but like your boy, Ernie Clement, Mm. who you were talking about yesterday. <laughs> yeah, he's off to a great start, but has a bit of a major league track record. It's not great. Um, 14 walks to four strikeouts, though. I, I have I have time to look at those AAA stat lines a little more closely now. Yeah. But yeah. no, this is the issue with Kevin Biggio right now is nobody on the 40-man is hitting. Addison Barger's hurt right as he was starting to turn around. Otto Lopez, Vinny Capra, those guys have not been good. And Spencer Horwitz has been, but he's the one guy that can't give you anything positionally like yeah. like last night would have been literally the only scenario yep. which he could come into a game which is vlad's day-to-day you need to pinch run for brandon belt and someone has to play first base <laughs> that's the only scenario yes. in which he could get into a game so uh also you know in terms of the like bigger picture concerns about like will horwitz hit at the next level still only one home run a uh, first baseman who's batting mm-hmm. average fuel. We all love John Allerud here, mm-hmm. but uh, one home run is going to be a tough sell. Yeah. sounds Brett Wallacey to me. All right. Uh, when we come back, were you, who, who did you like better? Brett Wallace or David Cooper? Uh, well, I like David Cooper because he actually hit when he arrived at the major league level and uh, he suffered a horrific injury. Wasn't that so, the yeah. deal? No, like I had a lot of time for David Cooper who was hitting doubles all over the place. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, David Cooper guy, hundred percent. All right. All right. When we come back, why hasn't Kyle Dubas either re-signed with the Toronto Maple Leafs or said he's not going to re-sign with the Toronto Maple Leafs? Is the week is almost out and some massive decisions are forthcoming for the Toronto Maple Leafs. What does the silence indicate? We'll talk about that and plenty more next. As the fan drive time continues, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, The Fan, and Sportsnet 360. Everything you need to know about the Blue Jays, Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan, Sportsnet 360, Ben Annis, Blake Murphy, and it was Lou Lamorello who told Kyle Dubas, if you have time, use it. <laughs> Maybe we don't have a ton of time here because end of June, they got to make some uh, decisions as far as extensions, as far as trades, because some no move clauses, they kick in July 1st. They don't have, well, they have a general manager now who I assume his contract also goes to the end of June. But by the way, I don't, did you see Brad for living, but who was not fired by the flames, but they were, they had a mutual parting of ways and, the Penguins wanted to interview him, and the Flames were like, not until his contract's up at the end of June. 
That seems a little bit uh, over the line, but okay. I don't know. Is it? I mean, I, I I was the one who was surprised the other day when I forget who we had on, but um, we were talking about, you know, blocking guys from taking interviews elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And like the rule of thumb in the NBA is you never block someone from talking about a promotion. Now, this isn't that. Yeah. But if the same logic holds in the NHL that you don't let someone interview for they a promotion. They essentially fired him. But they're probably paying him. Yes. So no, they're definitely paying him. The yeah. same school of thought that doesn't let someone who's under contract interview for a different position yeah. probably holds for if we are paying you, that's what the money you don't for. get to go take. And now I'm sure if Brad came back to them <laughs> and said, hey, you, here's your money. Here's the cash back. <laughs> let me interview for this job. I'm sure the flames would be a okay with that. But mm. I, uh, I mean, I, I'm not saying I agree with it, but I'm saying that the logic in NHL front offices at least appears to be consistent. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, what is the logic for the Toronto Maple Leafs brain trust when it comes to Kyle Dubas um, as far as, well, a letting him play out a lame duck season, uh, whatever contract offer, if there was one during the course of a regular season, where they're at now with contract discussions. We we talked ad nauseum on Monday about the, the not even cryptic, I mean, there were pretty straightforward comments from, from Kyle Dubas about it's either the Leafs or it's nothing, and it might be nothing because I got to talk to my family here because this is a, a extremely t- a trying time for them. A great story on uh, the Toronto Star website today from our own Nick Kiprios talking about how real mental health issues can be for people and not discounting at all the possibility of that being a real factor in the decision-making for Kyle Dubas. And that being true, but the other side of it is like you are – like this is you can be sympathetic to that but also understanding that this is a team trying to do business trying to win a stanley cup and need somebody in charge right now and need somebody fully committed to being in charge if that's what kyle dubas decides to do and monday being kind of some interesting you know stick in the spokes of the of this maple leafs tire at this point so i understand the logic i thought kipper's piece laid out what the larger questions Shanahan is and the Leafs are now facing with respect to this, um, where I would push back a little bit, not to his face because he'd stuff me in a garbage can. Yeah, yeah. But where I'd push back is like, you know, Kipper lays out this great case of, well, in part with Dubas, the Leafs have set up all of these infrastructures for their players and their Mm -hmm. staff and things like that to make sure that the focus can stay on hockey and the focus can stay on winning. And if there's a a mental health thing or a family thing or an anything thing, there are people within the organization and resources within the organization to help with that. And, you know, Kipper goes on to say, you know, kind of, it's not ironic that Dubas now needs it, but like he's helped build all those infrastructures. And now he's perhaps facing a moment like that. And I would say that, yes, you can be an organization that, understands and empathizes and tries to help with all those things, but also eventually has to make a decision on things. I think that if you actually believe in those things and you believe in the people and you believe in Kyle Dubas and you believe in making sure everyone's in the right headspace to do their job optimally and clear their heads to focus on winning and all that stuff, uh, you get more than 72 hours. I get it for sure. But what part of what's happened around Kyle Dubas and I don't know the specifics of what he's talking about with the family but like as far as the pressures and the outside noise like none of that should be a surprise if you're taking the the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs job it's not a surprise but it's also you know it's seven years in a row and you don't like none of us in this industry take you know long breaks to step away certainly not someone who runs the most important hockey franchise in the sport Mm -hmm. um 
you have a wife and kids. I don't. So maybe I can't, you know, empathize exactly. But I'd imagine if there were a scenario where you'd gone through kind of, a, you know, hell for a couple months and, and not only that, but that was topped on top of a couple of years of it. And yes, you, you know, and accept every element of that at each successive stage, you know, I'm the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs that comes with so much. We're in win now mode. That comes with so much. We failed last year. That comes with so much, all those things. You can understand them individually one at a time, but that doesn't mean that they don't add up. And the weight of that decision or the weight of that situation doesn't change for you. Now um, I can't speak to having a, having a wife and kids, I'm sure that if there were a big life decision, you know, I don't know, Pat McAfee calls you tomorrow and he's like, hey, want you to move to Pat McAfeeville? I don't know. We, he's, he lives out in the boonies, I think. I think um, he still lives in Indy, doesn't he? Does yeah. he have to move to Connecticut now? I don't know. Anyways. Anyway, so Pat McAfee calls you up. He's like, hey, you got to move your family to somewhere you haven't been before. Uh-huh. And the money's great and the job's obviously cool. But I need you to let me know in 24 hours if you're willing to pack up your family and move. Now, Dubas isn't moving, but I'm trying to paint a similar scenario where mm. I'm sure you have thought uh, thought over the course of your life, what if I got a promotion? What if a big offer mm. came? But then once it's immediately in front of you, you know, I think you'd probably want to take some time to talk it over with your wife and your kids and your other family and stuff, right? I, it's it's apples to oranges, but I, I'm sure. trying to paint what it might feel like to have known something was coming and known what the stakes were, but still having the actual decision point where you have to do all of that reflecting in a moment being a little much. Yep. I, I I am a little bit confused as to like, and I'm sure those conversations between he and his wife have already taken place, but like a decision wasn't wasn't reached before that. And I do wonder, like, the the other implication in in Kipper's story, and that I've seen, you know, some some think pieces on, is that maybe the Toronto Maple Leafs are having second thoughts now about bringing this guy back who might not be in the right headspace. Like that 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 his. I mean, if that's the case, though, that this all resolves very easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it hasn't. So I mean, I guess if if we're gonna like go I, I by the, indicators the fact that it hasn't happened yet it, i i think is actually if i was guessing i would say that it's a positive indicator of 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 kyle dubas returning yeah. to the job as general manager of the toronto maple Leafs. and look brandon shanahan obviously has a relationship with kyle dubas and, and you don't want to be you know window shopping when you you've you know you're not looking at the menu after you've ordered mm. necessarily um but if he's if there is communicated uncertainty between the sides you're probably in the process right now and and good for them. This maybe just hasn't leaked, but this is the time, you know, say they had let Kyle go on Monday. Mm-hmm. We, they wouldn't have a GM right now. They would be in the process of putting their list together mm-hmm. and setting up interviews and, and coming up with, Hey, what are the items we want to address? What are the types of people? Who do we want and to talk to? You can to? be as secret as you, as secretive as you want, but once you start talking to outside yes. people, like that stuff gets out. So I, I do think that, you know, it, let's say the deal's not done Monday and we're close to the draft and all those big decisions and, and you know, who knows? Let, let's play out a hypothetical where the Leafs gave Dubas a one-week exploding offer. Like, take, take the time, take the long weekend. Yeah. And, uh, you know, by the time Jay's Talk Plus ends on Monday <laughs> and we kick it over to, to Merrick at 12, uh, we got to know if you're the GM of this team or not. You know, this week still could have been used productively just like in the shadows of like, mm-hmm. okay, well, Dubas is gone and, and here's the game plan and here's who we're going to look at. And now we can leak everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm probably giving them a little bit too much benefit of the doubt, but I am trying to be empathetic to the fact that as well paid and as unbelievably cool as that job is and and he'd be sainted if they ever want a cup there's there are some 
complications with with that level of of pressure year over year. I'm sure. I'm trying sure. to be empathetic to that. That while is what the money's being for. Impatient. Right. But that is what the money's for. Right? I know. Yeah, yeah, four million bucks, but, and and Kipper reports that the offer is four million bucks, and use of the company jet whenever he wants. So that's that yeah. sounds nice. Me and Kyle going to New Japan for the G1. <laughs> um, well, the other thing too is like you can say that's what the money's for, but he's also. Yes, that's the trade-off you accept if you sign it. Mm-hmm. But he hasn't yeah, signed it yet. That's so right. It's not like he has a contract yeah, and yeah, has yeah. gotten the money and is yeah. now saying right. it's too much. He's taking the time to decide is is the money worth it or is everything else worth it. Um, mm. So, again, I don't, I don't know him personally. I, I don't have a similar situation, but I am trying to be – it's sprinkle in some empathy with my impatience. Yeah. I don't we we have a minute here before we have to break, so we probably can't like get into this a little bit further, and maybe we'll save it for later on in the program. But yeah, four million bucks, it's a lot. It's not nearly what we're talking about when it comes to the Raptors brain trust. And they have a championship to show for, right? Like that's part of it. But who's the bigger moneymaker at MLSE, the Maple Leafs or the but Toronto I'll, Raptors? I'll tell you this. If if the Toronto Raptors shopped for head coaches and, and front office executives with NHL budgets, um, I, I know the Leafs are a bigger revenue driver in, and a bigger deal in this country, but you're not competing for coaches and, and execs with a $4 million price nope. tag in the NBA. Yeah. I mean, they're like... The revenues are substantially higher. The salary cap's almost yes. twice as the high TV now. The TV deal is, is a, ridiculous. A like, joke. Yeah. Like, Nick Nurse was making twice that. I guess Masai makes around three times that. Um, yeah. It's, uh, again, apples to oranges. All right. Uh, we'll get into uh, that a little bit more. And uh, the return of the Stanley Cup playoffs tonight with Shannon Goldman of The Athletic next. As the fan drive time continues, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590 The Fan, and Sportsnet 360.